0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb, and I'm Joe McCormick,
1: and it's Saturday time to go into the vault. Now, this time we are going to be listening to part two of the the episode from last Saturday, uh, the the episode originally from September 2017 that you and Christian did about Timothy Leary.
0: Yeah, we figured since we have the the big psychedelic series that we've been uh, putting out, um, you know, the new episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, it made sense to revisit these older episodes that, uh, that uh, explored some of the some similar territory, you know, some similar history by focusing in on the life and death of Timothy Leary.
1: All right. So we hope you enjoy. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from
0: HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager, and this is part two of our Timothy Leary LSD series of episodes. We've already done part one, where we talk about the basic science behind LSD and psilocybin and the research that's been done using these psychedelic substances. Then we talked about the first part of Timothy Leary's life leading up to his research on this.
0: Yes, that's right. So if you if you miss part one, go back and listen to it because that's the one that's going to be front loaded with all of that LSD science and just the initial period of Leary's life, which uh, which ultimately kind of sets the uh, sets the pace for the rest of his life. Yeah, like the destruct self destructive behaviors, the patterns, they're all pretty much present uh,
1: before he even uh, you know gets out, finishes his education. So I've been sitting around the house reading about Timothy Leary for the last. Couple couple days and my wife says out of nowhere you know I met him right and I was like no really and and we both went to college at the University of New Hampshire for undergraduate and Uh before I got there but while she was there either as a freshman or a sophomore uh Timothy Leary came on one of his infamous campus speaking tours, gave one of his, you know, enlightenment talks. And then afterwards, my wife was outside the venue just, like, smoking a cigarette. And Timothy Leary came out and sat down next to her and just smoked a cigarette with her. And they chatted for, like, five or ten minutes. And then he got up and went on his way. What did they talk about? She didn't really say. She just said that, like, he was this kind of kind, cool, older guy. Yeah. But— When I read about his life and all of the uh, sort of women he went through, I can't help but imagine that he's the kind of like – old. he was the kind of older man who leeringly went up to 18-year-old girls after talks and was like, let's talk about LSD, you know? Yeah, one of the interesting
0: things that Robert Greenfield points out in his biography though is that apparently like there's the leery that we all imagine, which is often that – that cool older guy you know with yeah. a, with all this uh, charisma and certainly he seems to have had a certain amount of charisma his entire life but there's there was this period where he was kind of like a um, kind of a just like a greasy guy with a mustache <laughs> in ill-fitting clothing like yeah. that was the version of him uh before his first wife died yeah uh, right? and it's it was after that that things began to change and he kind of morphed into this uh this more, uh, you know, the the older, hip, cool Leary that we instantly imagine.
1: And this really all began at Harvard University, the place you would least expect it. So Leary joined Harvard University in 1959, but contrary to myth, I want to establish this because so many of the research got, uh, pieces of research got this wrong. He taught there, but he was not a professor there. He was not like a a tenured faculty, okay? He Mm -hmm. was teaching there for sure and he was part of the psychology department. Now, originally, his research there focused on the interaction of dimensions of personality and social relationships. He also did some work there as a psychotherapist. Leary was really anti-behaviorism and he disagreed that psychologists should only concern themselves with observable behavior. This was the exact opposite of what was in trend at the time. He more wanted to explore thoughts and beliefs and other internal mental states. He actually later on would compare himself in this role to William James who is understood as the father of American psychology hmm. uh, and who was also known to use nitrous oxide to stimulate mystical consciousness. Well, uh, so would Leary uh, yeah. later on. Uh, so at Harvard along with a guy named Richard Alpert who would later go on to become Ram Dass. Uh, you, you might know Ram Das from the sort of infamous uh, meditation book I guess called Be Here Now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he they worked together there in the psychology Department, Leary introduced others on the Harvard faculty to psilocybin. And this, as we talked about last episode, is the active ingredient in certain species of mushrooms. And at the time, it was legally available for research. But what about his first experience with this stuff? Well, He takes psilocybin while he's on vacation in Cuernavaca, Mexico. He and some friends were on vacation in between semesters. They took some samples of mushrooms. Uh, And their argument for the research that they were doing, this is back at Harvard, was that if psychology is the study of the mind, then it should have a legitimate interest in how cognition, perception, and emotion are affected by mind-altering substances. So some argued at the time that they were also unaware of the potential dangers of such research, right? So because psilocybin and LSD were so new on the scene, especially in America, uh, this team of psychologists, no matter how good intentioned they were, they they weren't aware of what the drawbacks could be. And Leary and Alpert agreed to policies to protect their subjects. So this included no participation from undergraduate students. They were not supposed to be giving uh, any kind of psychedelics to the undergraduate students at Harvard. But in 1963, Alpert was dismissed after he administered psilocybin to an undergraduate off-campus reportedly for sexual favors, although that is, it's unclear whether or not that's true. So Leary begins administering these drugs to other researchers. He also administers it to a group of prison inmates and a group of divinity students for his research. This was called the Harvard Psilocybin Project. And the goal, basically, of this project was to document the effects of uh, psychedelics on human consciousness. And the notes from these studies were very carefully documented and scripted. And we know this because Timothy Leary's archives are uh, pretty well maintained, and they're at the New York Public Library.
0: Yeah, in the, the various uh, projects he was involved in, he was, a, he was apparently very big on everyone providing him with lots of, uh, of data, and uh, was kind of a meticulous record keeper in that regard.
1: So let's take a a little bit closer look at these, these studies that he did, okay? Let's look first at the one that he did with a group of divinity students. So this was called the Good Friday Experiment, and it went like this. They gave psilocybin to 10 students and 10 to a placebo group. All of them then went to a good friday service. Huh. they wanted to see if this would facilitate any kind of mystical or spiritual experience, and in fact, 8 of the 10 reported a mystical experience. one reported a feeling of sacredness and a sense of peace. the placebo group, however, sat quietly through the service. the others would quote lay down or wander around the chapel muttering things like god is everywhere or oh, the glory. <laughs> What Leary failed to report in the study was that one of the subjects actually had a disturbing reaction and had to be given a dose of Thorazine to calm down. Now, you look back on this, that's a huge lapse of research ethics. That's that's not good. Yeah. So, so that's unfortunate. Now, Rick Doblin, who is the founder of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, he's come up on the show before. We talked especially about MAPS during our MDMA two-parter. He went back and he replicated this study, and he interviewed seven of the ten students involved, and they all said the experience reshaped their lives in profound ways. The student who reacted poorly actually said that he became convinced that he had been chosen to announce the arrival of the Messiah and ran from the chapel. So mm-hmm. this is apparently what actually happened. Is he freaked out, he started running away from the chapel. Well, that's they a went, huge responsibility. I feel yeah. like you need to announce Yeah, the if the he's going to announce the Messiah on Good Friday. Yeah. Of course, yeah. Give me some advanced <laughs> prep on that. Got it. You know, I... <laughs> Need some more prep time. All right. Let's talk about the Concord Prison Experiment next, okay? This is even wilder. So the aim here was to use psychedelics to reduce the recidivism rate in inmates.
0: Now, Leary was was not interested in working with prisoners for a few different reasons, uh, but he realized that he needed a, a way to measure the, the transformative nature of the drugs that he so believed in, and this offered the chance. So... It, it seems like a decent uh, argument, right? Could these substances open inmates up in a way that allowed them to discuss their conditions and their feelings? You know, someone who's yeah. just been hardened and calloused by uh, you know by crime, by life, and and by um, incarceration. Could this be the substance to just loosen them up enough to actually get some some work
1: done with them? So, over the course of nine months, uh, they used over a dozen convicts there as test subjects with psychedelics. Again, Rick Doblin replicated this study and reanalyzed it in 1998. Uh, He found that Leary's conclusion wasn't warranted. Leary's conclusion was the recidivism rate has been Mm -hmm. significantly reduced. Uh, But but Rick actually found eh, maybe not so much, Timothy Leary. Uh, The flaw was in the reporting results. He looked at recidivism rates 10 months after release, for the psilocybin takers, but he didn't look at the same amount of time for the control group. He only looked at them 30 months later. And this is important because recidivism depends a lot on time.
0: With rates rising the more time one is out, because of the increased opportunities. You know, yeah. when are you going to end up getting busted and end up going to back to jail? Is it going to be the first day you're out? No, it's going to be in the, the weeks that follow as more and more temptations come.
1: Yeah, we've talked about this on the show, geez, many, many times, but this goes – it speaks to something called the halo effect right mm-hmm. where researchers start seeing their data in a positive light as much as possible this becomes misleading this actually seems to go beyond the halo effect right he's not just seeing his data in a positive light he's manipulating the data so that it looks better than it actually is so already here you see like these are basically his two Big studies mm-hmm. on uh, on using psychedelics medically in any kind of way, and he's. Uh Either falsified his research or or made huge gaps in in ethical claims. Now, Albert would later uh, explain that the aim of the project he thought
0: was was pretty solid and with a, a very reasonable therapeutic model, but he says it would have required long term application and study, and Leary simply didn't have the patience for long term studies. <laughs> um, which uh, it's it, you can easily make the argument. Well, then you're kind of in the the, the wrong line of business here, right? Yeah, I mean, if yeah. you were if you want to conduct a scientific study, if you want to really uh, do the work, then you need to have the patience to see it through. And if you if you don't have the patience, you're going to end up with what we have here um, a, a a flawed
1: study that ends up uh, having to be thrown out uh, later on. Now, remember how I was saying that the. Uh, the, the notes that he took during this time were meticulous. Uh, Wired magazine did a great article on Timothy Leary, and I pulled a quote directly from it. They said, Later reports adhere less strictly to reality, meaning his reports. Mm-hmm. In one, filled out in March of 1963, just weeks before he got kicked out of Harvard, Leary prints in big block letters. He puts down a question mark for his age and lists his occupation as angel. Okay, yeah. <laughs> So you can start to see that he's already unraveling here, right? So Leary eventually moves on from psilocybin and he tries LSD in 1962 and then was dismissed from Harvard in 1963. And various faculty and administrators were essentially worried about the safety of their subjects, especially because Leary and Alpert were conducting their research while they themselves were under the influence of psilocybin. Uh, psychologist Professor Herbert C. Kelman circulated a letter around the faculty and called for a calling for the trials to be voluntary. One of Leary's former students remembers that they had a choice at the end of the semester. They could either take their final or they could participate in psilocybin trials. Hmm. So it's interesting. That's an interesting choice to make. Yeah, yeah, it it, it is an odd choice uh, to give a college student. So, okay, after all this stuff with the faculty, Leary was officially fired for failing to fulfill his teaching obligations. Because he went traveling instead. Ah. This is actually what they nailed him for, was that he wasn't teaching his classes. It wasn't the actual research that he was doing. He was just kind of like, I'm just going to travel instead of teaching my classes. And they were like, look, uh, the job says teach the classes. You're not really doing the job. Sorry, you're done. Now, this is the moment where Leary and Alpert, though, are propelled into stardom because they get kicked out of Harvard, and that's a big deal, right? And they become proponents for psychedelics. Peter Connors writes this book called The White Hand Society about Leary and his relationship with Allen Ginsberg. And he says, this is really, there's a certain point, and this is it, where Leary gives up on science. Instead of looking for data to legitimize his psychedelic research, he started talking about spiritual enlightenment instead. This wasn't entirely his fault, because let's think about it. He had no adequate scientific language in place to do so. Uh, Instead, he fell back on hip poetic language that he picked up from hanging out with people like Allen Ginsberg and Charles Olson and that really ended the field of psychology taking him seriously in any way. Mm-hmm.
0: But it also makes me think like ultimately Leary like this is a guy who is better suited to be a shaman than a scientist. This is a guy right. who is better fitted to be this
1: this uh, celebrity figure than 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 an actual researcher. Yeah. And now I have a lovely story before we end the the Harvard stuff and jump into his uh, time with the Millbrook group. So, William S. Burroughs is one of the people who actually denounced Timothy Leary oh, for wow. the same thing. He, William S. Burroughs obviously interested in psychedelics, yeah, author of Naked Lunch. Yeah. He goes to visit Timothy Leary while he's at Harvard and Burroughs gets there and he's like, where are the scientific studies? Like, I expected there to be mazes with rats running through them and electrodes and stuff. What You aren't proving anything. All you're doing is just sitting around and getting high and enjoying yourself. <laughs> so even William S. Burroughs was like, no, sorry. Like, I'm not buying this. So It makes you sympathize with this Harvard faculty crew who are like, kind of painted throughout the history of psychedelics as just being these, like, stodgy old men, right? Mm-hmm. But, like, even William S. Burroughs was like, Uh, you're not really doing anything here
0: Yeah, well Burroughs is is basically saying I thought you were one of them but you're just one of us (laughs) you
1: know yeah yeah exactly all right
0: we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to move on to the next chapter in the life of Timothy Leary
1: all right we're back So this is a great quote that comes from uh, Louis Manan's New Yorker article on Timothy Leary, and I think it's a good segue into his time with the Millbrook group. He says, the only things Leary was serious about were pleasure and renown. He underwent no fundamental transformation when he left the academic world for the counterculture. He liked women. He liked being the center of attention, and he liked to get high. And then there's a, this is another quote from it. He was a counterculture salesman, and he wore on every occasion the same blissed-out smile, a rictus somewhere between a beatific, what, me worry grin, and a movie star's frozen stare into the flashbulbs. One of his ex-wives described it as the smile of the ego actually eating the personality. Huh. Whew. That, I, I can't think of a harsher condemnation. <laughs> That's, ooh brutal. All right. So these guys get kicked out of Harvard. Yeah. That's where we left off basically, right? Alpert and Leary, they go and they say, well, let's just uh, establish our own privately funded research group. And we're going to call it the International Foundation for Internal Freedom. And it's going to be in Mexico. Basically, we'll get a bunch of people around the world to form groups. They'll take LSD, and they'll report their results to us. It'll be kind of like citizen science. Yeah, yeah, very scientific. (laughs) Unfortunately, the Mexican government wasn't having it. So they stepped in, and they demanded that Alpert and uh, Leary leave. So they leave. They've got no place left to go. Cambridge doesn't want them. Mexico doesn't want them. Well, where do they go? They go to this country estate in Millbrook, New York, that was provided to them by a millionaire who sympathized with their research in LSD. This is what we all need, man. We just need a sympathetic millionaire. Yeah. This millionaire was William Mellon Hitchcock, also known as Mr. Billy. Huh. Yeah. Mr. Billy was the grandson of the founder of Gulf Oil. This is where all his money came from. And at Millbrook, Leary established what he called the Castalia Foundation, which he said was dedicated to the scholarly study of LSD and its spiritual applications. So what's one of the things he does while he's there that's anywhere close to academic? He helps develop a device that's called the experiential typewriter, uh, and this allows psychedelic subjects to record what they're experiencing as it's happening. Otherwise, they can't tell you. This is essentially (laughs) him saying... I can't not be high while I'm doing these studies on people so we need something that we can just hit buttons of to get across what's happening rather than have somebody who's in the room who can sort of translate it, right?
0: It's easier to have a a special typewriter for people that that are high
1: than to have a single person that is not high in the room. It seems to be the case Yeah. yeah, so this thing looked like an old adding machine, it had large buttons on it that had labels to indicate what kind of bodily sensations you were Experiencing, or if you were having hallucinations, or you had a sense of entering the void, I'd love to see what the graphics. I think entering it would be void. an emoji, right? <laughs> He's
0: describing. He was inventing an emojis only typewriter. You know what? Yeah, we're not giving him enough credit. Yeah, Timothy Leary invented emojis. We wouldn't have the emoji
1: movie if it were not for <laughs> Timothy Leary. Uh, to, you know, to, to blame him for something else. Okay, so then this thing, basically, after you're you you know you're high, you pound on all these buttons, it prints out a little paper script that records what your trip was like. Uh, some articles characterize the Millbrook group and Leary as actually not being as uh, kind of like psychedelically crazy as you might think they were. Uh, they were sometimes depicted as being East Coast upper-class elitists and very exclusive. Now, Ken Kesey and his uh, Merry Pranksters mm-hmm. came out there at one point. Uh, and they were like, "Oh, this is great! Let's go meet these psychedelic pioneers." And they're like, "Oh man, these guys are just total stiffs. They're boring." <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it's this interesting interaction between these two worlds.
0: Yeah, like because you you tend to think, well, Leary would have just been able to move throughout uh, the the counterculture, and he would just be embraced everywhere. Yeah,
1: but uh, but not so. So during this time with Millbrook, Leary was convicted on several charges. This is when a lot of the prison stuff happens. Uh, It's all related to drug use and possession. The Millbrook house itself was raided and Leary was arrested by who? G Gordon Liddy yes uh, and at the time G Gordon Liddy was the he was part of the county Sheriff's Department there in New York now later on he went to be part of the Watergate burglary uh and he ends up kind of teaming up with with Timothy Leary down the way yeah we'll get into that in a bit so yeah so this is oh, man this is where things just really started getting bonkers right and Mill, Millbrook and afterwards are just where things really uh, let loose with Leary? Yeah. Now this is definitely a period where, on one level,
0: uh, Leary and his bunch they are being targeted. You yeah, know? totally. Uh, on the other hand, you could also say, well, they're kind of they're making themselves easy targets. But uh, you, know, you eventually end up in kind of gray area there mm-hmm. uh, when when you're saying, well, you know, did he? Have it coming or not, but now this is certainly a, a period of time though where you can say that that Leary and uh, people in his circle were being targeted by the authorities. On the other hand, you might charge well they were they were kind of making themselves ideal targets for these uh, for these
1: forces as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, let's take this as an example. Okay, so right after this raid happened, Leary goes down to New York and at the Manhattan Town Hall there. He gives a talk, and there he says, LSD, it might actually be a problem, and he says, quote, LSD may be creating a new race of mutants. This is like the the kind of hyperbole that he's starting to use in his rhetoric. Mm-hmm. He said he was going to stop using LSD and he urged others to do so, but he also advocated that LSD would cure alcoholism, accelerate learning, and may be helpful in treating all forms of mental illness. Well, as we know from the last episode, some of these things seem to be true. We just need to do more research on them. But because of its harmful side effects, Leary advised using other methods to produce psychedelic effects. So he says you can just simply do this with the right lights, sounds, and a stroboscope. So he's basically like don't bother with the LSD anymore just like get in the right mood man and we'll like put the right kind of colorful lights in a room and and things like that. And it's the same experience.
0: Well, this is, this is a really, inter- I found this to be a really interesting chapter in his life based on Greenfield's telling in the biography. And I do want to just drive home, like Greenfield is not a Leary apologist. Uh, if anything, like his book could have been titled Timothy Leary, colon, a mess. Right, <laughs> um, right. yeah. Uh, but but he, he gives an interesting account of this. So in this talk, uh, Leary prophesizes an evolution in human consciousness that will allow humans to consult their own heightened cellular consciousness and live in harmony with nature. So basically, like the abandonment of cities and and everything uh, you know is growing green again, and we're so like a new Eden on Earth. Yeah, you know, all you know. Sort of uh, you know highly optimistic uh, sort of hippy dippy kind of ideas, uh, which one might expect. But then he calls for a one-year moratorium on LSD usage, and this is because of uh, the changing legal status of of, uh, of LSD, and uh, on, on the heels of all these various uh, legal problems that he's uh, encountering. Mm-hmm. And in uh, Greenfield points out that this was quote a calculated strategy to curry favor with the establishment. With the current level of LSD use in America having reached epidemic proportions, Tim wanted to restore his own credibility by becoming the man with a solution to the
1: problem. Yeah. I mean, I I think this is really where we start seeing that he unfortunately made decisions for his own Mm well-being over – the decisions that may have, you know, uh, helped highlight what these psychedelics were capable of and any kind of medical or mental health prospect, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and he really was self-serving.
0: Yeah. Now, th- yeah, you mentioned how he said, "Well, you can use all alternate methods." Right. Well, he had to- he told everyone, "Well, if you've used LSD, then you maybe don't need it anymore. You can use alternate methods. And if you don't know alternate methods, I'll teach you." You know, this is a, a section For a price. I
1: bet. Well,
0: <laughs> but, but this is an area where I I feel like. Um, like Leary is correct. You know, we know uh-huh. that there are other ways to to have hallucinatory experiences, right. uh, including meditation, including things like yoga. Uh, so he's actually correct here. You know, his whatever his uh, his exact um, uh, motivations aside, you know, he's saying, yeah, you can you can have some sort of a heightened uh, sense of uh, of being. You can you can have a, a, this alternate experience without the use of this uh, substance that's becoming problematic. Now, he even goes on to testify before the Senate in 1966 on the nature of LSD. And, but this turns out to be a rather lackluster performance so he wasn't very assertive and there's it's I was reading the uh, the the back and forth here and there's just like a lot of stuff where he makes a statement and then uh, they're asking him if is that a, is are you being metaphorical or is that a literal statement and they spend time discussing that they talk about how LSD might theoretically be controlled in some fashion uh, but ev- everyone was pretty much disappointed with how it came out like he basically this was the a point where Leary could could really stand up and be the like the positive optimistic voice of the of the counterculture and, yeah. and speak for for this substance and speak for its research potential and
1: he wasn't able to come through. I just imagine like people like John C. Lilly or Sasha Shulgin were like just sitting at home like face to palm just like oh like man like you were supposed to be the one that made this accessible for the rest of us and now we're all screwed. Yeah. Uh, also I'm really glad Twitter wasn't around when Timothy <laughs> Leary was alive. Can you imagine? He would have been insufferable on Twitter. Yeah, well, probably. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is also around the time where he gives his infamous 1966 Playboy interview. This came up in every single article I read about him. So I went and I pulled the actual text and read the interview. This was, man, Playboy must have spent a lot of money on the sheets of paper that they printed this interview on because it was like a novel. Uh, He makes some really outrageous claims here, including that women commonly can have several hundred orgasms during sex on LSD. So that, doesn't seem to be true. Uh, no, again, fair enough. We haven't done that much research on it, but I'm pretty sure that's not true. Uh, some other stuff he said, he talks more about that LSD ceasefire, basically saying that he thinks that the two generations that are you know battling over LSD right now need to just like cool off for a little while so that they can get to the point where they can start looking at it analytically. He also says like, some frankly really misogynistic stuff here, not mm-hmm. just about you know women and sex. But he says, every woman has built into her cells and tissues the longing for a hero, sage, mythic male to open up and share her own divinity. But casual sexual encounters do not satisfy this deep longing. Uh, so he's just – he's really making these like n- huge mythic pronouncements uh, and, and it's just uh, – I think in poor taste. Maybe in 66, it was taken as being sort of a little bit more eccentric and interesting.
0: Yeah, but so certainly to modern readers, this mm. does sound like the ego consuming the personality.
1: Now, this, is, uh, this next quote is really one of the worst ones. Uh, he's asked about homosexuality, and he says, The fact is that LSD is a specific cure for homosexuality. It's well known that most sexual perversions are the result not of biological binds, but of freaky, dislocating childhood experiences. Experiences of one kind or another. Consequently, it's not surprising that we've had many cases of long-term homosexuals who under LSD discover that they are not only genitally, but genetically male. I don't even know what he's saying yeah. there. Uh, that they are basically attracted to females. The most famous in public of such cases is that of Allen Ginsberg, who has openly stated that he... Uh, The first time that he turned on to women was during an LSD session several years ago. This is only one of many such cases.
0: Okay, so... I, I have a, a lot, a lot of problems with with all of this. Obviously. Yeah, but I mean, one of them is that it's not like Leary didn't, did not, and had not uh, had numerous uh, friendships and uh, and professional relationships with uh, with, with uh, homosexual people. Yeah, uh, including doc-
1: Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> yeah, and uh,
0: Doctor D was another one. Right, uh, I mentioned, yeah. uh, you know, Tuscaloosa as being kind of this. Um, uh, the university there being this uh, this sort of uh, you know f- fortress of, uh, of of liberal minds at the time, and a number of d- different homosexual professors, uh, many of which had you know had gone to bat for for Leary and helped him uh, with the connections he needed to to navigate that portion of his life. So <clears throat> it just seems just completely ri- ridiculous and.
1: Uh, uh, and, and disappointing to, to to hear him talk about. Yeah, this. I mean, he's saying stuff that's like patently untrue. He has no evidence for that. But that on top of all of it, he's throwing his friends under the bus. Yeah, you know? it's just it's strange. Uh, and so, really, this is the point where a lot of people feel like he helped hasten the blackout on psychedelic research because every time he had a stunt like this or the one where he gave that talk in the Manhattan Town Hall, it would just. It, accelerate the establishment's thoughts that, oh my God, we absolutely have to shut this down, right? So the Millbrook group goes on to disband and Leary becomes a psychedelic speaker coach. And this is really the latter part of his life, what most people know him for. Uh, He's a public figure. He's associated with psychedelics and spiritual discovery. He even starts his own church called the League for Spiritual Discovery. He writes a bunch of books In uh, one segment that I read about this, a guy named Steve Silberman described Leary as a genius marketer during this time. And he says, he could have had a brilliant career hyping up luxury cars, iPads, or social media startups. Instead, he was hawking LSD and psychedelic gnosis. Uh, And then in that same conversation, uh, Connors, who who wrote that uh, White Hand Society book that I mentioned earlier, he responds and he says, Leary Got caught in a circular trap of marketing himself so he could get money to then afford to defend himself from his prosecutors. Hmm. Uh, so it's just all kinds of crazy stuff are going on. He gets pulled over in 1968. Uh, he's, he's driving down Laguna Beach and he's arrested for drugs. His son was so stoned in the backseat that when they pulled him into the um, jail, he took off all of his clothes and started masturbating. When he was shown what his son was doing, Leary laughed. Uh, his daughter was sentenced to six months in prison. Jack was ordered to undergo psychiatric observation. Leary got one to ten for possession of marijuana. So this is just one of many cases where he goes into jail and he gets out, right? He's described in the New York Times obituary. When he died, this is how the New York Times described him, as having an elegant, happy contempt for authority. And this is around the time where Richard Nixon infamously refers to him as the most dangerous man in America. Yeah. Again, hyperbole. Yeah. Everybody all over the place. Sounds a lot like right now. Yeah. People are just throwing out like this stuff that is just like super extreme. Uh He talks to Marshall McLuhan during this period of time. This is when McLuhan advises him, you know what you should do? You need to come up with a catchy slogan to advertise the wonders of LSD. This is where we get turn on, tune in, drop out from. Basically, McLuhan saying like, you need to get better at brand marketing,
0: dude. (laughs) I I never thought that that was a really great uh, slogan for anything. (laughs) I mean, the the drop out part especially, it's just like, I, I, I don't want. To try something that's going to make
1: me drop out of something. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he basically becomes a celebrity during this time. I said this at the top of the first episode. This is where he becomes famous for being famous, right? He ends up associating and taking trips with, and, and I mean psilocybin trips, with authors, musicians, criminals, and movie stars, right? Yeah. And he just gets famous for hanging out with these people. In 1970, he declares his candidacy for governor of California. Who's he running against? Ronald Reagan. Ah, <laughs> now this was interrupted when he was convicted on marijuana charges again, uh, and he escaped. This is this is the craziest part of the whole story. He escapes prison. This is at San Luis. Obasipo, uh, I guess that's a prison in California, and his followers help him get to Algeria. He essentially goes from Algeria to Switzerland and then to Afghanistan before returning to the United States in 1973. He eventually serves three more years in prison. But hold on. I just jumped over like four years of crazy <laughs> behavior. Let's zoom in on this a little bit. Supposedly, his escape from prison was assisted by the weather underground. Ah. And in Algeria, he was the house guest of Eldridge Cleaver, who was part of the Black Panthers. They didn't get along, so he goes on to Switzerland. You know who he meets in Switzerland? Albert Hoffman, the guy who invents LSD. They sit down and have a conversation. But uh, I also want to mention Greenfield, who we've been talking about this whole time, it's in Algiers where the two of them first meet up. So hmm. this is Greenfield's first experience with, with Timothy Leary is while he's on the run from escaping prison. Uh, when he returned to the U.S., here's the thing. He was facing way more jail time than three years, and he informed on all of his previous associates to the authorities. That includes his third wife, Rosemary. Hmm. So he, he informed on her as well. She had left him during the middle of all this. He ends up writing articles for the conservative magazine National Review. and in these articles he starts attacking John Lennon and Bob Dylan. And the reason why was he wanted to demonstrate that he had rehabilitated so they wouldn't put him back in
0: prison. Uh, and this this again sounds like the, the classic pattern with Leary that the Greenfield points out that he'll he'll get on a, a kick where he's following a rigid system and adhering to some sort of a you know expectation of what he should be. But it's only going to last for so long. Yeah, he turns
1: around and bites the hand that feeds him. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. After this, he mainly spends time on the campus lecture circuit. This includes public debates with G. Gordon Liddy. This is like one of the most fascinating parts that we've found in this entire affair here.
0: Yeah, the, the Liddy thing is interesting because both Leary and Liddy, had become caricatures of themselves at this point, uh, you know, inflated cartoon characters of liberal goofiness and conservative, uh, 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 curmudgeonry. Uh, they, they even made a movie uh, to capitalize on on their fame, or, or I guess to squeeze the last uh, bits of juice out of it. Uh, and there's a 1983 New York Times review of the film uh, by Vincent uh, Canby, and he shares the following: I thought thought this was particularly. Uh, telling. The two men are not exactly freaks, but one has the suspicion that they wouldn't be showing off in this way if they could possibly make a living in some other fashion. Whether uh, accurately or not, the movie suggests that the world has passed them by and that this personal appearance tour is one of the last ways in which uh, each can turn his individual notoriety to profit. Now, the reviewer also goes on to say that despite their their personas there is a scene in the film where uh, where each man uh, uh, and their current wives sit down and have breakfast together and they're having just this a very normal conversation about uh, you know just just everyday stuff like not a nothing nothing about law or politics or drugs or counterculture like there is this moment where you see this idea that they're perhaps just yeah, two people who are just trying to make a living for the time being and this is what they have
1: this would have been like uh, if Steve Bannon and Lindsay Lohan went on tour together or had like a reality TV show together where they just constantly argued.
0: Yeah, and and if, if neither had, uh, you know, a, a significant enterprise to, to back them up at that point. Right, yeah. It's kind of, I get the impression that it's kind of like... Uh, it's kind of like celebrity TV. If, if if this had happened today, it would have been a Leary and Liddy television show on some reality network, right? Them trying to learn how to dance
1: better than one another, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Why don't we take one more break, and then when we get back, we're going to talk about the end of Leary's life and his focus on, of all things, cybernetics. All right, we're back. So, we've talked a lot on our show before about cyborgs and cybernetics and transhumanism and what that has to do with space travel. It turns out, Timothy Leary, in his 70s, became fascinated by all this stuff, specifically electronic communication. And he would tell his audiences that electronic communication was going to be what would free their brains and souls from oppressive orthodoxies like education, religion, and politics. In particular, he was fascinated by things like virtual reality, computer games. He even went so far as to start his own software company before he died.
0: He also predicted that uh, implant. Planted uh, septal electrodes would one day be used recreationally, uh, and we're, we're not quite there yet, but it just goes to show how how interested he became in the role technology could play in alternate states of, uh, of awareness.
1: Yeah, I I don't know. I I'm, 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 I don't know if I'm quite there with Timothy Leary on this one. Uh, because we are now in an age where electronic communication is so vast. Like I said earlier, he would have been insufferable on Twitter. I can't <laughs> imagine. I can't imagine what this would be like. And, and I don't know necessarily that these uh, technologies have uh, enabled us to uh, break free of oppressive orthodoxies like education, religion, and politics. But, hey, there's still time, right? I mean, it's only yeah. been like 20 years since he passed away. Speaking of which— So he died in 1996 at his home in Beverly Hills, California. He was 75 years old. Interesting thing about this is... Outside of his fascination with psychedelics and electronics, his other fascination was with death and out-of-body experiences near death. So this was something that he turned into a public performance as well. He made it an event. Uh, He had video cameras record his death. He built the whole thing up from a year before when he was first told that he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And his friends collected his writings and his papers, all on a Leary-themed website, and they posted films of him there. He even recorded his daily drug intake on this website. It was basically a blog before there were blogs. Uh, now, I want to recap here. Let's return. Just We've been hitting on this over and over and over again throughout the episode, how self-destructive he was. He went through two divorces. He went through one separation. His first wife committed suicide. His second wife, who was the mistress that he he left his first wife over and who she committed suicide over, that woman left him after he struck her and their landlady called the police on them. And then his daughter also committed suicide in 1990. So he left this wake of broken people behind him. It just doesn't leave a good taste in my mouth.
0: Yeah, that was that was my experience with the research as well. Uh, I didn't go into this idolizing Leary, uh, but I, but I went into, went into it like appreciating some of the things he'd, he'd said before and the use of his persona in various uh, bits of fiction or music. Uh, and it was it was disappointing to to really uh,
1: not only to see this pattern, but to to spend a lot of time reading about it. Yeah, I think like after he had been like. You know, he's been mythologized over the years, especially for our generation. Uh, I expected more, Yeah. you know? Well, a lot of – you know, I noticed
0: that a lot of people were kind of critical on on Amazon, for instance, of the, uh, uh, the Greenfield biography. Oh, really? Because they thought, you know, it's like, oh, well, he's just kind of a – it's kind of a hatchet job or whatever. But uh, I think the thing is that the biography reveals more about – the real Timothy Leary than a lot of people, you know, were comfortable confronting. Yeah, yeah. Now um, he's dying, as you said, and uh, and he's keeping a track of the various substances he's, t- he's taking. So Leary actually considered taking LSD on his deathbed, and this would in, in doing this he would have been following the lead of uh, Aldous Huxley, who uh, took an injection of a hundred micrograms on his deathbed. Um, now, in the time leading up to his death, Leary did use ketamine and uh, enhanced it with nitrous oxide. He drank. Toward the end, there was a lot of, of smoking, uh, especially. Uh, Carol Rosen, uh, a friend who is at uh, at his bedside, said that his uh, penultimate words were, why not? Why not? Why not? Repeating the final question 50 times, uh, 50 times in different voices. And then, according to his son, he said, beautiful and died.
1: Huh. Okay. Part of me is is very cynical and has to wonder how much of that was performed, yeah. given that he knew that the cameras were on and everything.
0: It's true, yeah, this is true. Now he had pursued cryonic suspension at one point, but his final wishes were that his cremated remains be distributed among his friends as well as shot into space. So indeed, a year later, seven grams of his ashes in a vial went into, a spa- into space on a Pegasus rocket. And this, by the way, was the rocket that also contained seven grams of ashes uh, from a uh, few other notable individuals, including Gene Roddenberry.
1: Now, so how do you get? Do you buy into that ahead of time, or does somebody sponsor you? How does that work?
0: Um, I think in Leary's case, it was a sponsorship
1: situation. Okay.
0: Now, G- Greenfield in his biography, has, uh, he sums everything up, uh, I think uh, rather succinctly at the end. He says, a self-proclaimed cheerleader for change who himself had never been able to change. Timothy Leary had finally achieved his heart's desire. In death as he could never be in life, he was not only free but soaring through the heavens at which he had gazed so often in wondering during his most improbable life. That's a that's a very nice eulogy I think. Yeah, I mean but I mean it also just sums up the you know a lot of the the disorder that was yeah. there as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely, but it paints him in a nicer picture than I think honestly maybe we have in the last two episodes of the show. We've been trying. I really wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt, you know. Yeah, uh, same here. Uh, yeah. So actually, I mentioned this earlier, but Leary's archives are today stored at the New York Public Library. Reportedly, the library paid $900,000 for them. uh, And a portion of that, just to be clear, went back toward processing the collection. These archives had an interesting life before they showed up at the library because they were moved from place to place so that they could avoid the FBI seizing them. Uh, And they, they actually... Uh, it did end up getting seized by the FBI. Regardless, and then they were returned. They ended up in a storage facility in California until 2010. Now the library houses his documents alongside George Washington, Herman Melville, and Truman Capote.
0: So, in closing, um, yeah, uh, there was there was definitely a lot more chaos and disorder. In Leary's life than, than, uh, than I anticipated going in. Again, not, not being very familiar with the details of his life, just sort of having the, a pop culture awareness of him and a media filtered awareness of him. Um, yeah, it ended up being uh, at times a depressing journey to, to, uh, to, to read more in detail about his life and, and his work.
1: Yeah, uh, I agree. The New Yorker review of the Greenfield biography that we use for a lot of this compares him to Wilhelm Reich, who we also Mm -hmm. have an episode on. Uh, And they basically say, look, they were both renegade psychologists who became brand fads among, quote unquote, enlightened people. Uh, To me... Leary seems to be more like a sly huckster than any kind of contributor to philosophy or psychology. Like I said, that's unfortunate. I, I guess I just expected more. Uh, the Don Latin book, The Harvard Psychedelic Club, which I also read through, refers to him as the trickster throughout the book. Like They give a sort of like mythil, mythical uh, status to each of the characters from the Harvard Psychedelic Club. Uh-huh. Richard Alpert or, or Ram Dass gets the term the seeker, but Leary is the trickster. So he'd be kind of like the Loki of this Avengers? Yeah, yeah. it seems like it, yeah. Uh, I had a hard time reading all this research and not seeing a, a selfish kind of egomaniacal guy who seemed to sacrifice all of his family and friends along the way just so he could extend his five minutes of either fun or fame or both. Yeah. I don't know. So, yeah, it was really disappointing, unfortunately. Um I, yeah, I'm curious. I'm sure that there are plenty of people who are listening to this episode who are real uh, devout you know, fans of Leary and his wisdom. And maybe there's something that Robert and I are missing out on here. I don't know. Well,
0: I will say this, uh, and to sort of you know end it on a, a positive note. You know, Leary's words have definitely inspired me in the past, and I and I think I'll continue to find inspiration in in some of his words. One of the weird things that happens with icons, celebrities, and even and even prophets is that there emerges this disconnect between self and perception, between actuality and the ideal. So you know the the pop culture Leary here is I, I think something of a fiction, but. It can serve as a as a beneficial fiction, I think, at times. So, I'd like to to close out here with a quote that I've always valued, uh, and and one that I tend to sort of employ as a guiding principle for for stuff to blow your mind. Okay. Uh, so, I'll read it once again in uh, in my impersonation of Timothy Leary. Throughout human history, as our species has faced the frightening, terrorizing fact that we do not know who we are or where we are going in this ocean of chaos, it has been the authorities, the political, the religious, the educational authorities, who attempted to comfort us by giving us order, rules, regulations, informing, forming in our minds their view of reality. To think for yourself, you must question authority and learn how to put yourself in a state of vulnerable, open-mindedness, chaotic, confused vulnerability to inform
1: yourself. Now that I can agree with.
0: Yeah, that I think uh, that lines up with uh, with how we tend to approach topics here. Yeah, how I think we should uh, up, always approach any kind of uh, you know authority figure, even when that authority figure is Timothy
1: Leary. So hope you enjoyed this marathon of Timothy Leary and LSD information that we gave you this week. Uh, We are probably going to be doing a Facebook Live Trailer Talk event the day after this episode releases. So if you're listening the day of, go to our Facebook page. Uh, That Friday morning will probably be on Facebook Live talking about uh, movies that are related to Timothy Leary and or uh, LSD and psilocybin. Yeah,
0: some sort of psychedelic cinema celebration. We haven't figured it out yet, but it'll probably
1: probably be more fun than the details of Larry's life. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Uh, so, right, if you want to contact us or follow us on that or, or find out when that's happening, we're all over social media. We'll try to post in advance, let you know what the timing is on that. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Tumblr, and we're on Instagram.
0: And if you want to get in touch with us the old-fashioned way, just shoot us an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com